Hello, welcome to Medicine Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, I'm here in, in fact, the kitchen of um, Samantha Harvey, who is a writer. She's the author of four novels, all of them either short or long-listed or awarded um, and praised, certainly. She's a reader in creative writing in Bath Spa University. And here in Bath, in fact, which was the town of my first few months as a doctor, here with her today to talk about and talk around her most recent uh, book, a book of non-fiction called The Shapeless Unease. Samantha, welcome to Medicine Unbox Voices. Hi. Um, thanks very much for um, talking to us today. In this book, you, you, you're in a sustained period of sleeplessness and appear to be describing your encounter with that and with yourself, but also with the world through and within that period. Do you think that's what was happening in that book? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I have to um, qualify from the outset that when I started writing this, I had no notion that it would be a book. And in fact, if I had thought that it would be a book, I don't think I'd have been able to write it because I had been struggling to write a novel um, largely to do with having insomnia. Um, and my insomnia was was really quite extreme for quite a long time. And I couldn't really sustain the idea of a novel or, or of a, a long-form narrative, you know. So I started writing whatever came to me while I was sleep-deprived, whether that was at night or in the day or, you know, whatever. When was that time? How long ago was <clears throat> so it started... Um, I mean, it seems quite abruptly in the autumn of 2017. Um, and then for most of 2018 was, was very bad. And I still have insomnia now, but it's, it's less extreme than it was. So um, it's been gradually getting better. But yeah, for a time it was, it was I would say, extreme and very, very intense and... Um, disturbing experience and because I have always been writing for the last 15 years I've been sort of making my living out of writing in some way and um, I thought well I don't really know what else I can do with this experience but write about it um, or not even really write about it just write from it mm. just write see what happens uh, so the book is is sort of fragmented and disjointed in terms of its um its interests they they range you know quite widely from yeah from sleep and insomnia but also to to all sorts of other subjects whatever grabbed me at the time I was writing and it also really ranges in terms of tone and register and voice so it's written in um in some parts in first person <clears throat> sometimes second person, sometimes third person, 
um, sometimes in the form of a, in one in one part in the form of a case study, in one part in the form of a short story, um, a, a sort of a what could loosely be described as an essay. You know, so all sorts of different registers, and that was dictated purely by whatever <clears throat> grabbed me the day yes. that I sat down okay. to write. Yeah, rather than being consciously plotted out in that way and right. writing them in a change form now. Right. At, at heart, though, for all of those, <clears throat> there is an unease. You're, you're exploring the whole, mm. exploring, you're almost trying to not unease, the unease that you were feeling mm. continuously. And that word's really interesting to me. And I was thinking about that word on the way here today, particularly given my day-to-day encounters with the whole business of disease. Disease, disease. yeah. So I looked it up, of course, unease, and it's defined as anxiety or discontent, mm. or at least in the kind of brief dictionary on my iPhone, um, as opposed to disease and um, being a disorder of structure or function within an organism. And you talk a lot about anxiety, the anxiety you were experiencing in the book. And I, I don't know, I'll probably get into a lot of trouble for this comment, but it felt <laughs> wider than anxiety and deeper than anxiety. I mean, of course, anxiety can be profoundly affecting, but what you were feeling and articulating to me was much bigger than anxiety. Uh, unease feels right. Of yeah, course. yeah, a, a sort of akin to the you know to the the French sort of malaise. You know, that's something that's that is just deep. Mm. <clears throat> seems to be running deep in you, and um, can't really be attached to anything. And somehow comes into contact with your sense of self. And I think that unconsciously what I'm doing in this book is, and and what I've done while I've had insomnia and been awake at night and tried to hunt down causes and reasons and and therefore solutions, um, was to try to find some fundamental thing in myself that was causing my insomnia and probably causing all my other problems as if we I could in some way be decoded you know almost doctor like that in an impulse I'm just gonna do the diagnostics here and come up with the unifying pathology exactly that you know and and if I if I can find that thing I'll be cured um or at least I can I can ease whatever whatever's wrong you know I can if, if I can't cure it then I can treat it in some way um, and and so much of the unease that I that I describe in the book, I think, is coming from the fact that I can't find that thing in myself, and nor can I even really find a self. Um, that probably sounds hopelessly abstract, but you know, as you start going back through your life and and, and looking through the things that have happened to you and the ways that you have experience the world it's hard to find that unifying thing that you could say this is me this is who I am and and when there's a a break or a shock in your life and insomnia was that for me um because it was quite abrupt and it was severe and I'd always been a very good sleeper before that um I felt that the self that I was experiencing in insomnia wasn't the self that I knew I wasn't it wasn't familiar to me at all so I felt that there'd been a break with 
myself, whatever that was, and I couldn't find that self again, and I wasn't even sure if that self existed anymore or had ever existed. And so the whole thing is this you know, deep ranging around for something that you can attach your sense of self to and not finding it. I mean, it's almost, in a sense, extraordinary that we do function moment to moment, coherently, ostensibly, on the surface of it. Because actually, even if there's not a single diagnostic there, what you're pointing to in terms of feelings of fear and rage and loss alongside wonder and love are the fabric of us. They're not not surprising entities. And it felt as if they were almost just surfaced for that period with clear downstream effects on you. Yeah, I would say that's true. And although I I talk in the book about anxiety and try to make some distinction between anxiety and fear um, or anxiety and worry and, and so on, um, no, really what I think I've encountered more than, than anxiety is terror, you know, this, this sort of absolute terror at, in, in my case, it took the form of, um, of sleeplessness. So I, I became, have become really frightened of not sleeping. So it's not just that I don't sleep, it's that I'm terrified of that, which of course is probably, well, is perpetuating the not sleeping. But um, where does that terror come from? And I and I ask myself that all the time, and I try to trace back and think. Well, there are moments in my childhood for sure I can see that it might have come from there, and um, some of what I feel sometimes at night when I can't sleep, I I can recognize as feelings I had when I was a child mm. in certain extreme situations. And but you know. I'm in my 40s now and and where has that been sitting in me for all all these decades you know what what is it it, is it that it's all coming out now and it's sort of hitting the surface and this is what often happens to us in middle age and it's why middle age is such a difficult rocky time for a lot of people um and I I just don't know and I don't understand it and I think part of my um navigating having insomnia is is really that navigating the unknownness of things and of ourselves and I'm somehow reconciling myself to that that I just don't know and I will probably never really understand and just to kind of counter the feelings or countenance I should say the feelings when they come up and and accept that that's what they are you talk about that a lot um and the, the the clear sense that actually you are unknowable, bottomless, provisional, the world is bottomless and provisional. The idea that we can have any certainty about the world just doesn't feel um, in any way realistic or mm. honest. Um, and in fact, really interestingly to me, align the whole um, edifices of science and religion as being similarly provoked to provide some fashion of certainty and similarly being both premised on faith. Just wondered if you could say a bit about that and that conclusion you arrived at, that actually faith is central to both of them, or I guess almost trust and a bit of a flight of belief at heart. 
Yeah. <laughs> do you think that's true? Do you believe that? Yes, do you, I do. Yeah. I do. I think it's interesting that we are, we are kind of faithful beings, um, humans. And we, whether we put our faith in religion or whether we put our faith in science, and, and, you know, to an extent, we all put our faith in science all the time, you know, just by sitting on a chair and trusting that it will support us. We are. So, of course, we, we're all doing that. We don't have to be scientists to do that. Um, or, or whether we put our, our faith in, um, you know, in money or in um, politics or, or whatever it is. There's an investment of our faith in something and our will to believe in what it what it can do for us how it can serve us and how it can allow us to understand the world and um in the book I'm just really trying to to get to get to that that we we're all longing for to believe in something we're all longing for certainty um and I and I find it very difficult to feel beyond a, a sort of day-to-day um provisional faith in the sun rising and setting and <clears throat> things being as as they normally are um i find it very difficult to invest my my belief in 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 anything that that smacks of certainty and is that in itself then that recognition a source of fear or is the the illusion of certainty somehow generative of fear which is it hmm that's a really good question I don't know because this section in the book arose because I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a, a you know beautiful writer and thinker and has very strong um Christian faith which which wavers she questions it but it, it but it um ultimately it, it pertains and has pertained all through her life and um and I was speaking to her one day and I just thought, I wish I could have what you have. Right. It was a really strong longing to just have that. Um, and because when you're sleep deprived, everything comes back to sleep. I also thought if I had that, I would be able to sleep. Um, that's why she can sleep and I can't. <laughs> um, but there, there, is a, there is a deep longing for that. But does... Does the prospect of it bring me fear? Maybe. I, I think it rings alarm bells, not through Christianity or religion as such, but any absolute faith in anything um, rings alarm bells for me. So I don't know that it's a source of fear, but a source of... Um, Being on thin ice. Yes, exactly. And, and, of, and somehow of having stopped being curious mm. or stopped questioning. Yes, which, which is, for me, the, the oxygen in, in my life. I, I, well, I, I hope it will go on to be the oxygen in my life. It's really interesting talking to you about that because it just brings to mind the phenomenon I often experience where I'm looking after someone, there's a real and completely understandable, legitimate aversion from hearing the truth of their context. Yet at the same time, it's visible that the retreat from that truth is really anxiety provoking and um, the acknowledgement of it is both painful but oddly um, oddly um, sounder I suppose more there's an arrival within it 
Mm. So it's anxiety relieving, even if it hurts. Yeah. Um, and much, it, you know, speaking about that, there's a lot. There's a lot of. Um, ache in the book around death and suffering and a lot of events around you at that time which were the suffering and, and losses of others that you loved and fear of those losses and wondering almost what this whole structure of life is at all. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the, the book is kind of... Um... Its backdrop is this preoccupation with death, I suppose, and it starts, well, in a very early section, there's a, um, I talk about my cousin's death, which happened around the time I got insomnia. So those two things, although I don't think they're causally connected, particularly, they're certainly correlated and um, they began to feel like they were kind of inextricably linked in some way. and he died very suddenly and and it was very untimely and he was buried and I began, you know, when I couldn't sleep, I began to worry about that and to worry about him being underground and I, and I couldn't square that with the fact that he had been a child and we had run around the garden together and I, and I, I couldn't put those two things together. It sort of didn't make any sense to me that that could be the case, that could be true. And um, so death is is there all the way through. And again, death is the sort of the one certainty we have, I suppose, but there's nothing certain about it because we don't know what it is. I mean, I can say with my rational mind, it's the end of, of who I am and I and the matter that is me goes back to the earth in some way and, and, and so it is. But of course that's not the whole story. We, we, we know it can't be the whole story because I'm not only matter, or if I am only matter, it, it, we don't understand enough about that matter to, yes. to know how it, it can be matter that can, that can create love and, and can create fear and cre- create thoughts of what death is and so on. So there's so much there that we don't know and then I, I began to worry about what would happen after death and you know all these and questions that I you know I think that there's healthy curiosity and then there's a sort of unhealthy pursuit of 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 thoughts that you have because you're feeling tormented and they they are there to to torment you you know and I I think I got locked into that uh, a bit with with death and worrying about then what if I'm not real at all. What yeah. if none of this is real? Which yes. you know, it's, you know, it sounds okay. It sounds like a platitude or or like first year philosophy, you know. But but actually, it's it you gripped me. Described it, yeah. experiencing it in a pub. Yes, exactly. I just thought this is all very well. I'm sitting in a pub with some friends, but I could just be a simulation. This could all be a simulation, and how would I know? Um, and these are the kind of thoughts I, you know, I have. It's not entirely <laughs> unheard of for me to have these thoughts, but they, but they just connected with a, a particular anxiety that I was having at the time. It's stemming from the question: if it is possible, on the one hand, to be running around a garden with someone, and for them, some years later, just not to be present. How do I make sense of this? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, and if that can happen, then anything can happen. And and it is then it comes back to certainty. There, there can be no certainty that I'm not a simulation, say. Um, because if I'm programmed to feel objective, that my my existence is in some way objective, then there's no way of me knowing if it's objective or not. Of course, the feeling that it is is, is nothing to go by because that's I've been programmed to feel that. And, you know, okay, so it all starts to get a bit abstract and, you know, maybe not so interesting. But I, but for me, where it be became interesting and is still interesting is it keyed into a feeling of panic for me about um, isolation and loneliness. Mm. And because if you're, if you're a simulation and someone's just kind of prodding some, <laughs> something in a, yeah. you know. Some electrode somewhere. Exactly. Um, that's <clears> a... That's a sort of fundamentally isolated and lonely, if that's the right word, um, condition. And I wanted and needed to to believe that I wasn't alone. And these people I was sitting with in the pub were really there, and that there was a real consolation to their presence. And I think so much of this, so much of our suffering, is about isolation. And and as soon as we suffer, we feel isolated. It's part of we may not be isolated, but it feels like, you know, our our universe, our world, kind of shrinks down to to that to our the self alone. You know that the self, something that ultimately must suffer alone and and can only die alone. And 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 for me, that I think that's part of that, or the or the the root of of that, um, or that anxiety that I just. I needed the 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 consolation the consolation of other people and 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 the phrase there's a phrase that keeps re returning in the book proliferations of love is that connected to what you've just described that 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 without one it will sound unfortunately tried that somehow love however we kind of find that is antidotal to that panic yeah absolutely yeah and this phrase um this phrase came up it just sort of surfaced for me while i was writing and and it ends up in in the short story mm. that's in the book and um yeah I, I had a feeling that everything that we do that is in some way outward in some way expansive is an expression of love whether that's just being in, in the company of other people or writing or you know it, it feels to me very much that writing is a is a form of love and an expression of love um in in its sort of generosity or it's a way of expanding one's own heart i mean it certainly does for me when i write um it's hard, though, isn't it? Or maybe I'm just declaring my own um, sadly increasingly evident limits on this front. <laughs> but is that, that kind of expansivity strikes me, the simple acts of kindness and love strike me as challenging, not easily accessible. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They're really challenging. They get challenged all the time. You know, I, I try to, um, 
live by the that maxim, and I can't even remember who said it. You may know. Um, be kind whenever possible, and it is always possible. Mm, I don't know. No, um, like, yeah. The Dalai Lama, Lama probably. Yes. Yeah. And you know, most days I I try to remind myself of that, and I think, well, that sounds simple. You know, <laughs> if it, it's always possible, it it must always be possible, right? So I. So that's that's how I'm going to live, and that seems like a fairly simple, um, you know, not not uh, not an obscure goal. You know, I can I can do that, and you know, five minutes later, <laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world to 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 be kind or to have a kind thought about something that's that I've heard on the radio or or some or towards myself mm. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge challenge of life, isn't it? And um, and I, I, and I think being loving is, it's, it's sort of in our nature and it's also one of the hardest things that, that we do. I mean, when you, it's, I was struck by the, your encounter with medicine during this period in the book, your, your, your rendition of that encounter. And um, it didn't strike me that you were met kindly. Accepting the fact entirely that we live in a time-constrained world that doesn't always have answers to the sorts of challenges you were experiencing. Nonetheless, um, if nothing else, what struck me was your description of what was a very clear power dynamic in that in those medical consultations. I've scribbled it down here. It's a great phrase because as soon as I read it, I became very conscious of... Um, in myself, where you describe the doctor, it's that forward lean that says, now, no more silliness, <laughs> yeah? Did you feel, did you feel as if you weren't being met? Well, certainly by that one doctor, I did, certainly. Which isn't to say I'm completely without um, understanding of her position, because I, I think... <clears throat> And to, to sort of be specific about insomnia, it's, it's a very difficult thing for anyone to know what to do mm. with for a start. And I think she really didn't know what to do with it. And she's seeing someone who who seems, you know, to, <clears throat> to be otherwise well and, and to just be in some way compounding her own problems. And And I think if you don't have insomnia... As well, it's quite difficult to understand what it's like, and I've certainly fallen foul of that in my life when I was a good sleeper and had a, a friend who had insomnia and had really I, I look at it now and I'm horrified by how little sympathy or empathy I had. I just thought, well, if you're really tired, why don't you sleep? You know, as if that were an idea she'd never had. <laughs> um, so, so I get it. You know, I don't, I and I certainly don't demonise that doctor, although I think there are some points at which she she stepped over a, a line um but i think in general there's this i've i've experienced an interesting and distressing thing when i've come into contact with mainly sort of health and medical professionals about insomnia it's, it's the way that you're kind of infantilized and you're you're made to feel that you that you are either 
sort of a bit wayward or, or naughty because <laughs> you can't sleep. So you must be doing something wrong. You know, you must be drinking too much coffee or you must be going to bed at the wrong time. or you, Your room must be two degrees too warm or the bath that you had before bed was too hot. And well, you didn't do enough exercise. We did too much exercise and it was a wrong kind of exercise. <laughs> and you know all of this that, you know, as if, if you would just stop being wayward or stupid, you would be able to do this thing that everybody can do. So why can't you? And, and, and I think that's something that I've encountered over and over again. And, and maybe it is a projection or a mirroring of what you feel about yourself, because all of those thoughts went through my head as well. Why can't I do this thing that I always used to do? But even in the absence of a, um, a clinical answer, diagnosis or a solution i say this from no position of wisdom because i i am absolutely sure i do this wrong every day almost you just wanted to be it would have meant a lot to be heard wouldn't it as a as a person who was having a very 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 troubling time even if there isn't a solution yeah and i did have that i mean i did find a doctor who who did provide that and um, she had no clue what to do yes. with me. <laughs> but it's all you felt heard. But I was heard, and you know she would. She didn't dismiss what I was going through. She absolutely accepted the level of distress, mm. um, and and listened and did whatever she could. And that in itself was, <clears throat> you know, it was everything. Well, it goes back to the expansivity you were yeah. quoting. Interestingly, though, you yourself, I mean, this does come down to me a little bit around, it comes to the limits of our capacity to identify with another person's experience, certainly their suffering, and yourself um, deride, you know, your own writing from the very recent past where you made claims around sleep and sleeplessness and thought you know you worry about the fraudulence of language that glibly um claims knowledge of another but actually through this experience wonder a little bit about the limits of how much we can really understand another person's suffering if we haven't felt it and i was moved and fascinated to see how you, you felt something particular for a homeless individual you met at the height of your own challenges around sleeplessness that you might not have felt mm. in the same way. That's interesting to me. Was that a bit of a, as a writer whose substrate is identifying with us, experience imagining it, was that a strange wake-up call? Yeah, I think that... Oh, I, I'm not saying anything new when I when I say that it's only really when you suffer, when you really suffer, that you know what suffering is and you can understand it in another person. Um, and although I've had a lot of things happen in my life, you know, it's been a it's been a blessed and happy life, and it's also had all sorts of things go wrong, as all lives do. And um, it's had some really hard times, but I. But I have never suffered. I had never suffered before in the way I've suffered in the last couple of years. And it has made me understand other people much more and give much more latitude 
to to other people's suffering especially given that you know we we tend to judge other people's suffering on whether we think that it's it's justified or not you know um and a lot of people could think that insomnia was an unjustified form of suffering you know it's not really a problem there's nothing actually pathologically wrong with you it's just a you know, you, you've just created a problem out of thin air, or so it seems, you know, it's how it seems to me sometimes. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's given me a much greater sense of, you know, whatever, the, whatever it is that, that gets you, however your suffering takes form, however life finds <clears throat> a way of, of igniting your, your terror, whatever that terror is, is justified and legitimate and it's, and it's there to be sort of understood by other people as much as possible. And um, in that sense, it's really deepened my, um, just my understanding of, of the, the corners that we, that we all find ourselves in at different points in our lives. And I hope that I would never, when I come out of my own suffering, I hope that I will never forget that because of course, it's it's um, you know, it, it equips you better as a human being to be able to to understand what it's like for other people, and I do think that you know, there's this great conundrum of ever knowing another person, and and in in a sense, we never can, and and sometimes I'm amazed by how <laughs> how differently people think to me, you know, still. Uh, um, in my 40s, I'm still sometimes encounters a position that someone else holds and think, how on earth can we feel or think so differently about something? You know, and it astonishes me still. Um, but underneath that, we have a... I mean, I, I might be wrong in this, but it's, it's my, my hunch is we have a access as human beings to a kind of... A, a repertoire of of feelings and they aren't there aren't actually that many of them they're all the same you know the same few feelings that we all tap into and then there are infinite ways of those feelings expressing themselves and turning yes. into thought and that thought those thoughts joining up and forming beliefs and so on but, but the alphabet is finite the alphabet yeah. is finite exactly and you only have to get to that level of that of the alphabet and and you've met someone and you and it doesn't take very long to get there and you can get underneath all sorts of thoughts and beliefs that may absolutely contradict your own and very quickly find something that is absolutely known to both of you i.e we're both experiencing fear or hope or desire be it about other stuff absolutely impulse is shared yeah absolutely does it, I mean, though, does it leave you, where does that leave you as a writer? I mean, two, two things. One, I was going, in terms of your hesitation around being able to identify with others, but you've explained that there is a, a version of that is still very much alive and well. But also, there was some worry in your writing about the mechanics of intellect and abstraction and the whole edifice of art, whether those, you describe 
wonderfully how we think and write in clauses and we, we take it for granted. And as I was reading that, I was also reading Virginia Woolf's The Lighthouse, which is, you know, clause on clause on clause. And it just felt as if you were saying in there that that intellect, wondrous though it is, also may have some fallout that leaves us troubled. You were describing a, uh, an indigenous population elsewhere that interestingly didn't have the same kind of abstract thought built into their language and how that might feel to be so cognitively different. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, I, I'm very aware of being very quickly out of my depth with, with all of this. But, um, but you wondered about it. I wa- yeah, as I wonder about a lot of things. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, so as you say, I, I became really interested in um, this, this tribe, the Piraha. I don't know if that's exactly the right way of saying it, but the, the Piraha tribe in the Brazilian Amazon. And, and they're, they're very well documented, and um, I didn't discover them. <laughs> um, <laughs> breaking news. And they they're notable you know the, the fact that they they have become so noted is because they don't seem to use recursion in in language so they don't embed one clause inside another so until um studies had been done on on, on this tribe it had been believed or chomsky had sort of put forward the, the idea that recursion is what defines human language it's sort of what defines there there are an infinite number of clauses we can embed inside one another and that in some way defines the human mind you know that it's a recursive windmilling thing spiraling thing of one thought embedded inside another embedded inside another inside another um and that and that's all you know fascinating and then they they discovered this tribe that don't seem to do that and yet are absolutely Hmm. evidently functioning functioning uh, humans who have, you know, have an absolutely rich um, life, and so I, so, so that sort of grabbed me because I tend to feel that the, the the source of of all of our troubles as human beings, and certainly of my own troubles, are in my tendency my capacity and and tendency to think too much um to get lost in all of those spirals of thought to abstract myself away from the here and now um to become too identified with myself as I was in the past or myself as I project in the in the future neither of which exist both of, of fictional beings, you know, the the self I was this morning that got up um, is a is now a fictional being. It doesn't exist except in my own memory, and my own memory is something that's constantly recreating the past. Um, every time I revisit a memory, I change it, and I change what happened in the past. And and it's very hard for me, and I guess for all other humans to to remain in in a in a state of presence and so 
it was really interesting to me that there that there is this possibility of human life that doesn't seem to do that, whether that's just our misapprehension of this tribe, maybe, I don't know. Um, but do you think it would be less, you know, do you, do you wonder if it would feel less rich if also easier? Or I mean, in what you're describing, there are almost many, you know, renowned spiritual enlightened figures have described around living in the moment and mm. free of abstraction free of that kind of thought in time mm. but it, it, it'd be great to be enlightened but it sounds kind of dull <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think much art would get made no. i mean i might be wrong about that um i had a sort of enlightened moment myself once <laughs> well i went on a um on a silent retreat, which I do sometimes. And, and usually I go on a silent retreat and I, and it's, and it's hard work and it's painful and it's mentally, um, agony, you know, (laughs) and I come away thinking, well, that must've been good for me because, you know, in a way that running a marathon must be good for you. Um, I'm not sure how, but I think it must've been. Um, but one time I went and, and the, the skies cleared and, you know, something happened to me, I don't know what, and and everything that people describe when they describe having sort of transcended something, all of that happened to me. And it was the most wonderful feeling. It didn't last very long once I made contact with the outside world again, <laughs> but it was, um, it's kind of oceanic feeling and, and, um, you know, I, I, I long to have it back, but it, but if I, but if I lived in that state, I wouldn't write anything ever again, I don't think. There was no sense of... You know, just being in that moment was, was so expansive and, and had, there was so much to investigate there that the investigation that we do in, in art and, in, and that I do in novels and that, that sort of playing with time and with selfhood, that just wouldn't have wouldn't have been possible in or that necessary. state. Or, or yeah, absolutely not necessary. I mean, maybe that may, so maybe it would be fine not to have it. I, I don't know. I mean, it's such a, um, it, it's such a wildly theoretical conversation because I don't suppose I'll ever <laughs> have that back again, but. It feels a bit like the Larkin line, um, such a beautiful line of poetry that you, um, mentioned a few times a million petal flower of being here yeah yes that's an amazing line of poetry isn't it and it's a and it's a very apt way of describing well what is it enough i mean i was gonna say it's an apt way of describing that feeling i had on on that retreat but actually um it it, it also does describe the the complexity and that sort of the buzzing, you know, feeling of of just being alive and creating something and of writing or of, of whatever it is being absorbed in whatever it is you're doing and and that life is this extremely simple, extremely complex thing that we're all engaged in all the time. It, it brings me to a quote from, from the book, just as you're, and I've got it here, where despite all of these... Um, difficult feelings, despite suffering, you do wonder what to make of life and you write, what is it? 
what is it that is leaning forward in me now towards the world? Which is a, I, th- I, I like that question a lot. Because that is a, um, that's a slightly ineffable thing, mm-hmm. but very present. Have you, did you reach an answer? <laughs> Only in the sense that, you know, again, to come back to that, the idea of love and that something, uh, something in you that just won't, let go of of expanding into the world of of being with other people of of trying to find expression for your experience now i think that um it's very interesting when i think about writing this book because i could be deep in this knot of suffering and there was a little bit of my brain or mind or whatever it is that was thinking, even in that moment, that was thinking, I wonder how I can make this into a beautiful sentence. And I wonder how I can express this. And it wasn't a, it was it was far from a cynical thought. It wasn't, you know, how can I like somehow, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how can I not commercialise my suffering? Um, it was this, you know, this, this thing that is so robust and resilient that it will not be, it will not be crushed by suffering that wants to just keep expressing itself and not only expressing itself, but finding the most perfect, the most beautiful, the most apt, um, the most succinct and compact way of expressing what is being felt in that moment. As a means of inquiry, if not consciously, it feels, I don't know, you tell me, but if I'm aware of that feeling, at some level, that's trying to, that's a, that's inquiry. That's trying to make sense of myself. It, it's it's asking a question and answering it. Yeah. Concurrently, does that feel true to you? Yeah, I think that is true. Yes, it's, and it, and it's, it's reaffirming. It reaffirmed to me that there is a bit of me, and I don't know which bit it is or what it is. Is it my brain? Is it my mind? Is it my heart? That that is insulated from suffering and it might be just a fragment but it's it seems to be always there i mean if i lost it i never lost it for very long and and it, because it was insulated from suffering it could it could still ask those questions what what, what am i what do i want to say about this and and you're right in the posing of the question there's a possibility of an answer isn't there and the answer might not come but the answer becomes possible because you've asked the question and that's sort of sanity to me that's what you know just keeps keeps your head above water even when you're really profoundly suffering so in its widest sense writing is a means towards or offers the possibility of a means towards knowledge and moving forward. It keeps the question alive, yeah. I suppose. Holds the question, yeah. And um, I know I don't know about. I don't really know what anything is for. <laughs> I don't. Know, I don't know what writing is for. I don't know what any of the arts are for. I, I know that they are absolutely 
um, necessary and urgent things in our lives for many of us, or actually for all of us um, in some way. Um, and I don't know how, how lofty their um, purpose needs to be. No, quite. Um, but I think... You know, there's just something for me about writing a good sentence that seems the most liberating and joyous thing in the world, and I don't know why. Um, it doesn't need to ever be a published sentence. It's just, oh, you know, I've taken something from my experience and I've made it into, into a beautiful sentence. And then somehow you you put all those sentences together and then... You've got thousands of those sentences, maybe. And then you've got a book. And then that book somehow is bigger and wiser than you are. And it knows more than you know. And I find that really magical, you know, that you control the sentences, but you have, but, but what you create is so much bigger than yourself and, and knows more about you and about the world than you do. Proliferations of love. Yes, exactly. In the, yeah, in the form of of words somehow it's been a great pleasure thank you very much for speaking to me it's my pleasure medicine unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online do take a look but for now thank you for listening and i hope you enjoy it <laughs>